0: Good morning to you, all right? Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. No, I'm kidding. Please don't yell good morning at me. I'm fine. I trust you. God brought you here. Uh, You know, as you've listened to the songs this morning, you've heard Emily's uh, story. And as I consider uh, what we've sung so far, the things that we have spoken of God's word, uh, I believe this little section uh, in Luke is going to be instructive and encouraging for you here this morning. So if you're new to Citadel Square, you picked a great Sunday to join us. I trust that uh, God's going to speak, speak to you today through his word. Uh, I trust that you'll be encouraged and built up uh, for whatever God has for you, whether it's going on the mission field, whether it's going to work on Monday, uh, whatever that is. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it uh, and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in the pew rack in front of you there. Uh, Elbow a neighbor and they'll hand it to you. And if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Take it with you. Read it uh, till you give it away. Come back, get another one. And we'd love to see more people involved in reading God's word. Um, This little bitty section, you may look at your bulletin and go, Steve, that's it? Luke 8, 1 to 3. What are you going to do? with Luke 8, 1-3. Well, you have not been to our church before. <laughs> you may be asking, no. This, uh, this is a very important, it's a, it's a deceptively important section here in Luke's gospel. Uh, this little bitty section is all, in the Greek manuscripts is often connected to the previous story. Now, if you weren't with us last week, the previous story, we looked at the contrast between uh, Jesus' way of looking at life and the Pharisee's way of looking at life. And it was illustrated through the story of a sinful woman who came into a meal and was weeping and wiping Christ's feet with her hair, anointing his feet and just profound thankfulness uh, for who he is and what he's done. And and if you just think about that story or look at it in your Bible, it's just the the previous paragraph, uh, I'd like you to consider just a contrast between the Pharisee And the woman. And this is the contrast I'd like you to consider. Would you agree with me that the Pharisee has probably been at his religious life for a long time? Would you agree with that? And in a contrast, would you agree with me that the sinful woman who's just been forgiven is probably at the front end of her journey? Amen? I think we I think we can grant both of those realities. This sinful woman has come to such a profound recognition of her forgiveness in Jesus' name. From her life of past sin, so much so that the reputation. Uh, that others may have about her still is kind of the cloud around her life. The shame of her past life is probably still, you know, viscerally experienced as she's in the presence of Christ who's forgiven her sins. She's profoundly thankful, but at the same time she's profoundly vulnerable because she is known as a sinner and at the very same time she's uh, confronted with that fact and then confronted with the fact that her sins can be forgiven. And she's right at the beginning of her life as a Christian. I think for all of us, what I want you to do today as we get into this passage is I want you to go back to your beginning as a Christian. I want you to think about, you know, all of us, I think at at some point when we first come to the knowledge of Christ and the truth that he can forgive sins, we feel a lot like this woman does, don't we? That we feel simultaneously profoundly vulnerable and exposed as the sinner that we are where we realize I'm not the man or I'm not the woman or I'm not who I want to be and we feel simultaneously vulnerable and exposed and humbled and worshipful and joyful all at once. While we feel exposed, we at the same time carry this divine invulnerability. Because now what people have said about me don't have the last word in my life. My past doesn't have to define me anymore after being forgiven by Jesus. I step into a new way of life, a new way of looking at life, a new understanding that there's somebody's word over my life that has the last word over my life. So that as we celebrate baptism here this morning, the thing that is true in Stephen's life, the thing that is true in every believer's life is that one day death will not have the last word. And that Christ will reach down, reach down into death and take you by the hand and say, Death, the last enemy, will be defeated. But right in the beginning of our Christian life, we have this this conflict, this emotional, spiritual uh, crossroads. But sooner or later, as you leave from that significant initial experience with Jesus Christ, you go back to Monday morning, and now you're going about your life, And, and it's almost inevitable for all of us that the doubts start to creep back in where we remember who we were before Christ. And it's, it's almost unbelievable that Christ can forgive our sins and can change our lives and cannot count our past failures, our sins, our unbelief, our outright wickedness against us. And that is an incredible joy, incredibly joyful and freeing truth. But the longer you begin to walk with Christ, there, there comes a time... Where we ask a question of ourselves, where we look at our past, we look at our relative maturity at the time. Does anybody? Are you as mature as you want to be? Say no, no. See, all of you are lying. Of course, I am. Look at how mature I am. None of us are as mature as we want to be. None of us really have as much distance from our sins and our patterns of unbelief that we really want to have. And inevitably, we get to a situation in life where we go, can God use me? Doesn't he see the the unbelief and the uncertainty and the the ways in which I'm still deceived, I still believe the wrong things about him, I still have patterns of sin that I, I, I want to get rid of, but I can't get rid of, and the temptation that shows up in our all of our lives is just to put our head down and try to get to a point where we think we could be used by God maybe perhaps one day later. It's not today, but one day when I get it figured out, God can use me. And what I want to show you in just these... Three verses is that that's a lie. No matter where you are in your journey with Jesus Christ, no matter what your past recent history has shown about who you are and your need for Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ can take you right where you are with the gifts and the uncertainties and the doubts and the failures that you have and put you to work being a part of the greatest rescue mission of humanity ever. And all that's in these three little verses. You believe that? You believe I'm going to get that out of three verses? Steve, I don't believe you're going to get that out of three. You just hang on. You just hang on. Here's what we're going to see in these three little verses. Number one, you're going to see the priority of Jesus' ministry. This, these three verses sum up much of what we've seen from chapter four, when Christ came on the scene, to the end of chapter 7 where he's forgiven this sinful woman. And we're going to be reminded of what Jesus has been doing, what his priorities are. Number two, you're going to see the people that make up uh, Jesus' band of merry men and women, to use a Robin Hood analogy. You didn't expect that was coming. Jesus is Robin Hood. Maybe, I don't know. Roll with me. You're going to see the people that that are drawn into ministry with Jesus Christ around the priority of what he has been called to do. And number three, you're going to see the provision of Jesus' ministry. How does this whole thing keep going? Okay, priority of Christ, the people of his ministry, and the provision for his ministry. You good? Let's pray, ask God for his grace, and we'll jump in here together. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your Word, uh, we pray that the songs that we have sung, the celebration of baptism, the prayers that we have prayed, would confirm the theme that you are working in this few minutes that we gather. That the lessons that you would long to teach us through your Word, through the power of your Spirit, that those things would be unfolded before our eyes, that we would see things about you that perhaps we've never seen before, that we would expose sins and the unbelief that is in our heart that needs to get reoriented, repented of, and to lay hold of the truth through faith. Faith. Father, we pray that we would leave this place more confident of your purposes in our life for those who come in here and are uncertain of what you're doing or how you're doing it or why their circumstances don't feel like you're in charge. I pray that these few verses would encourage us during our time together. Father, would you bless us to that end? Would you capture our attention? Would you capture our affections for you? And would we gain a new confidence In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Luke, chapter 8, verse 1. Luke starts with soon afterward. And uh, like I said, in the Greek manuscripts, these few verses are connected to the previous story. So it seems that the story of the woman who's been forgiven and the perspective that the Pharisees have really are the two poles by which we're understanding Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is confronted and has been confronted by the Pharisees who've been uh, attacking him for a variety of reasons up to this point. Who he talks to, who he sits with, who he eats with, who he touches, whether or not he eats, fasts, celebrates the Sabbath or not. And you're watching these two divisions in worldview happen, in Jesus' worldview and the Pharisees' worldview. Well, as Luke is now going to summarize the things that have been happening up to this point, chapter 8 is a very important one because it starts to, Luke chapter 8 starts with a group of people and ends with a group of people showing that the message of the gospel now begins to create not just theological categories out there, but it starts to draw people to the truth. It starts to create community. When the gospel is preached, the orphans who know and long for their sins to be forgiven are drawn to the gospel message into a brand new community of people. Why do you come and join the church? You believe that you are not in charge of your life, that God is in charge, that you have sins, your relationship is out of step, and you need someone to die on the cross for those sins, be buried, rise from the dead. What does that do? It creates a brand new community of people around the truth of Jesus' work, death, burial, resurrection, and teaching. So soon afterward, we're watching the story of this woman who is now confronted with her sin, redeemed, forgiven, assured, and now leaves the presence of Christ at peace with God. That's the gospel message. Well, now what Luke does for us is re- go back to Jesus' priority. Now, if you remember, you remember Luke chapter 4? It was like 2016. Luke chapter 4 was the single greatest healing ministry ever. Remember that? Jesus laid hands on all the sick who came. He laid hands on every single one. He healed deep into the night. He gets up early the next morning. Everybody comes rushing, looking out for Jesus. And Jesus says, I must leave. Because this is why I've come. I've got to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And his ministry on the heels of the most successful ministry outing ever is compelled by Christ to preach into other places. And it says he preaches in the synagogues of Galilee. He's pulled through his priority to preaching the kingdom. And this is what Luke gives us here. In fact, Luke gives us two significant words that characterize the ministry of Jesus Christ during his time on earth. Look at what he says. First, he goes on through the cities and villages, which means Jesus' ministry now takes on an itinerant flavor. He's been in the synagogues up to this point, dealing in very particular cities, in Capernaum, in Nain, in uh, lots of the synagogues of Galilee. He's been drawing people to himself as his ministry has been primarily in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. But now his ministry starts to flower. It starts to move into different places. So as Christ's ministry is pulled out, it, Luke tells us he's going to go to a lots of other different places. And who is going to follow him is this group of people, which we'll get to in a minute, but First, Luke tells us that his preaching comprises two big ideas. Number one is proclaiming, and number two is bringing the good news. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us up to this point in Luke. If you're in Luke 8, would you turn back to Luke chapter 4? Keep your finger there in Luke 8. Look back at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 was the beginning of of Jesus' introduction into the ministry as he comes into the synagogue at Nazareth. We're going to look at 4.16. And this is how, Luke, how Jesus himself introduces his own ministry. And it's confirmed in several places all along the way. Luke 4.16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, hang on a second. The two words that Luke uses over in Luke 8 are a word uh, for preaching and a word for proclaiming the good news. There's two different words. One has to do with authority. The other one has to do with effect. Okay? Here the two words are put together in, in the quote that Jesus gives us from Isaiah. Look at what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, here's this word, proclaim. It's the Greek word caruso. It's a word that means authoritative heralding. When Jesus steps on the scene to step into the ministry that God has for him, Jesus doesn't give you seven ways to live your best life now. You know that, right? When Jesus steps onto the scene, the second person of the Trinity, he is speaking exactly what God wants him to say. Number one, he's proclaiming the good news to the poor. Number two, he sent me to, same word, proclaim liberty to the captives. The first one is the word, like I said, uh, I got them backwards. Hang with me. I'll get them straight. Proclaiming the good news is the first one that talks about the effect. The next one has to do with the authority and the heralding, which is the second proclaim he uses. Proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Both ideas, proclamation of good news and the proclaiming of freedom through the authority of God's designated Christ are captured in Isaiah's ministry. Now, the same thing happens in Luke 4, the end of Luke 4, what I just mentioned, where Jesus says, I must go preach elsewhere. That's the word proclaimed. It happens when Jesus talks and encourages John the Baptist later on in Luke chapter 7, where he says the the poor have the good news preached to them. So now come back to Luke chapter 8 with me. Jesus' message is an official one. It's an authoritative one. It's a message to be heralded. In fact, when this word is used throughout the New Testament epistles, it's always tied to the proclamation of Jesus Christ or the proclamation of the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 4, the word that means to authoritatively declare. Paul says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In the pastoral epistles, when Paul is writing to Timothy... He tells Timothy, preach the word, proclaim it, herald it. Be clear that this is the message that God has to communicate to sinful humanity. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let me give you one more that's right at the end of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 24. Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures and he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. John the Baptist proclaims, Jesus proclaims, the apostles proclaim, the next generation of people after the apostles in the pastoral epistles are told to proclaim. You know who else proclaims? Angels in heaven in the book of Revelation. What's the point? Don't stop preaching the gospel. Don't shrink back. Don't avoid it. Herald the message because that message from God has authority. Now, would you agree that a message with authority can either have good effect or bad effect? You ever had a speeding ticket? And the authority of the judge says, you sped. And the authority of the judge says, you pay. Well, Jesus' message and Jesus' ministry has has been connecting two big ideas, hasn't it? It's been connecting the good news... What people experience when they come in contact with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Have you, been, have you been seeing what people experience when they come in contact with Jesus' ministry? Demons leave. Sicknesses are healed. For women are forgiven of past sins. Jesus teaches with authority, calls out demons in the synagogue, and people get freed. What is going on with Jesus' ministry? Well, if you were to sum up the ministry from Isaiah that Jesus gives to us, it's a ministry of forgiveness, of freedom, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So when Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, Luke, when Luke includes this here for us to say, one, there's Jesus's ministry includes a ministry of heralding the heavenly message. Number two, he gives a message that is a blessing to people. Do you believe that the gospel is good news? Both of you believe the gospel is good news. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Proclaiming. Good news. Here's what Paul says when this word proclaiming is used. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. What is central in the life of the church? It's the proclamation of the authoritative message from God where people can be forgiven of their sins, and that is good news. Hold on to that message. Make it central in the life of the church. Galatians 1, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the ones we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. This is Jesus' priority. Jesus' priority is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' priority is is the freedom of people from things that bind them. Jesus' authoritative declaration is that you can be made right with God and God can look upon your life because of what Jesus has done for you with favor. you believe that? This is the priority of what Jesus is doing. So all of what has been happening in Luke up to this point, we're continuously reminded that Jesus' authority is connected to the beneficial forgiveness of sins, the effect upon people where they become redeemed and they're married together in his preaching and in his person. Which is what he gives you at the end of the verse. You see what the end of the verse said? It's the content of the kingdom of God. It's the place where God rules. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, you exchange an old master for a new master. Colossians says you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. There's a new way of life. There's a new way of living, a new way of seeing things, a new way of putting my faith in things, a new way of trusting that he is a good king who has good for me when he exercises authority in my life. Remember what Jonathan taught for us several weeks ago where he showed us that Christ's authority is always for the good of his people. So, Luke, right at the beginning, says this is the priority. And all the way through the New Testament, Jesus, apostles, New Testament writings, all have to do with keeping this message central. Holding to the fact that people can be forgiven from their sins in Jesus' name. That's the message that that tries to get adjusted. That's the message that tries to get confronted by circumstances, by suffering. That's the message that gets compromised by the morality that the church shows and needs to repent of and come back to the gospel. Remember 2 Corinthians? So Luke begins with us, showing us that this is Jesus' priority. And now he's going to move into the people. You with me so far? Here is where Jesus now begins to move into. Luke describes for us the people who are attracted to this ministry. Because if you don't have the priority of the preaching and teaching of the gospel in the church, you inevitably will have disunity. You ever tell your kids you're going to go do something, and you have to change what you're going to do, and you are confronted with the expectations of your children who thought for sure that you said we were going to. And now you as the parent have to say, no, no, no. There's a higher priority than your expectations. There's a higher priority than your plans. Where does disunity show up in the church? When the priorities are wrong. When we don't all agree on the most important thing. So Luke lets us know when Jesus Christ has a priority in place, For how people can be redeemed, forgiven, put right with God, the people who are going to be drawn into that are going to be drawn into those priorities. So here are the first group of people that we're introduced to. We've been watching Jesus uh, invite people into ministry, right? We've seen Matthew leave his life of being a tax collector. We saw Peter, James, and John leave their lucrative fishing business on the best day of fishing they've ever experienced. But what Luke introduces us here, we saw actually in Luke Luke chapter 6, we saw the apostles individually named and called, right? But here, Luke introduces us to a term, and he makes that term a corporate term. It's the first time he calls them this. He calls them the 12. But there's something that I want you to see, because he kind of, I think this is important. Luke does this, I think, for a reason. He doesn't say... Here's the list of the individuals again. He gives him kind of a collective noun. We are the twelve. But then he lets you know something specific and important about the twelve that pertains to every single person in their relationship with God as they are called into walking with Christ according to Christ's priorities. Here's what Matthew does for you. You see it there in the the verse that the twelve were what? They were with him. Here's how Mark categorizes. Mark's gospel is compressed. Everything happens immediately, and it's like Mark is running out of ink when he writes. Uh, Mark 3 says this, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So right at the beginning, we've got Jesus and his priorities, right? Here's what Jesus is doing. Here's the thing that Jesus is called to do. Here's the thing that all the apostles are going to be called to do. In a chapter or so, they're going to be given the authority to preach, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom of God, just like Christ. But all of that commissioning that's about to happen in one chapter can't eclipse the fact that the d- disciples, now apostles, early in their training before their commission, are called first and foremost to be with Christ. You know that's your primary calling first and foremost as a believer in Jesus Christ is to be with Christ. Spend time with Christ. Know Christ. Understand Christ. Align your life according to the priorities of Jesus Christ. There's your number one thing. The twelve now are brought into this ministry of proclamation, preaching, evangelization, declaring the kingdom of God where people can be made right with them and the first thing that Luke draws our attention to is the fact that they are called to be with him. The key to any ministry success will always ultimately come back to time spent with Jesus Christ. Do you know that? If time spent with Christ is not the source of your Christian life, it doesn't matter what's going to happen out here because inevitably you're going to be cut off from the vine. So there's the 12, that they're with him. Pretty easy, right? Uh, one of the things that you know I recognize um, in my own life, you know, what's interesting is where what Luke gives us here is that the disciples were with Christ, uh, and it's a very unique season, right? Anybody want to follow Jesus around, watching him cast out demons, teach, and do that? Anybody want to do that? I'd like to do that. I'd sign me up for that. I'm not going to come in on work, to work on Monday. I'm going to be over there with Jesus, casting out demons. Uh, what's interesting is, is for the course of Jesus' three-year ministry, he gets to the end of his three-year ministry after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he gives them the Great Commission. And he tells the disciples who are there, and he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age a lot of us I think can have a tendency that we kind of go I'm going to spend time with Jesus Jesus you and me We're going alright Jesus alright Jesus you stay there I'm going to go do some work for Jesus and then we come back and it's Sunday and we're like alright Jesus here's what I did all week long I wasn't really with you so much I had a lot that I was doing but now let's be together and what I've found the longer I've lived in my Christian life is that I walk through situations and circumstances where Christ is there before I got there do you know that? So that I walk into situations that are a surprise to me. And I go, how in the world, where's Jesus? And I have found that the longer I live, I am called uh, not to like have a quiet time, a huddle with Jesus and then go out and run the play and then come back and go, I don't know, did we do good? But to be in constant communication with him so that I face different situations in life, disappointments, circumstances, failures, unexpected things that happen in my life. I'm called to have a kind of God awareness Because he promised to be with, to be with me always. So the disciples are first called to be with him. And then he says, I'm going to promise to be with you. Do disciples face anything crazy as you go through the book of Acts? All sorts of stuff. What are they doing? Praying all the time. God, what do you want us to do now? Give us boldness because we want to preach the gospel. But we don't know what's going to happen. Hey, look, a prison broke down. Hey, he broke Peter out. Hey, guess what? He let Paul down through a basket. What's happening? We don't know. Let's ask God. There's always this God awareness happening. So Luke tells us is being with Christ because he promises ultimately to be with us. Now, we're going to be introduced to some people here that are not the apostles. Uh, and you'll see them there in verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Now, while these women are distinguished, from the apostles they're in the same phrase aren't they because they also are with Jesus they also are spending time in this brand new community that revolves around Jesus Christ and the priorities that he has from heaven women in this time this you don't you probably don't you probably have heard kind of echoes of women were not were kind of marginalized in this time. And that's true. Uh, Women weren't allowed in the most intimate areas of the temple. They'd be relegated to the court of the women. No rabbi would take on a woman as a disciple. You know that? They were considered inferior and unable to learn. They weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. But when Jesus shows up, And Luke, you know, Luke is the only gospel that tells us this. Women are mentioned at the crucifixion and at the resurrection account. We know they're there. Matthew and Mark make mention of them in the past. But only Luke takes time to tell you that they were there from the very beginning of his ministry. And he pauses. Now, we're going to learn something from these three influential ladies here for just a minute. But I want you to see that Jesus is inviting women into a personal relationship with himself. When no other rabbi would. When nobody else would. And Jesus is distinctly, religiously, countercultural in this time. Now, watch how these women... Are described. They may have been marginalized. They may have been ignored in the culture. They may even have been said, you can't even touch that woman as we saw in that story last week, didn't we? But here, these women are introduced by a past tense. You see it? Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmity. We've only had one woman named in Jesus' ministry up to this point. It's been Peter's mother-in-law who's healed by a fever. But in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, there are crowds and crowds and crowds of people who are healed from physical infirmities, weaknesses, and healed from evil spirits. And what Luke takes time to show you here is the people who are connected to Jesus Christ all have a past. You know that? There's not one Christian in here who was at the top of their game and God said, I got to get that one. You know that? You laugh, but doesn't it live in your heart that you think you've got to be better, faster, stronger, run a good 40, bench 315 to be used by Christ? Don't you think I want to put my past away and I want to focus on my relative sanctification at the time? I'd rather not talk about the whole evil spirits thing. I'd rather not talk about the fact that I was weak and I was broken and I was unable until Christ found me and put his hand on my life. And that's, I think, one of the lies that we all have a tendency to believe is that our past defines us, not Jesus Christ defines us. But here we are in black and white in Luke's gospel here where he says they've got a past, but their past doesn't have the last word because the verb is healed. Amen? Amen. The things that used to hold me don't hold me anymore. Ladies, are there things that you've done in your past that you're embarrassed of but for the grace and the blood of Christ that he has redeemed you? Come on, ladies. Amen? Amen. Yep, there are things that he has done to save me, to redeem me, to restore me, to forgive me, to break the things that held me in bondage and in chains. That he has healed me from these things. Now, that's the general statement. Let me show you the three specific statements that we give us in Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Susanna. So, I want you to consider. I just want to, I want to draw out their lives for a minute, and I want to expose lies that we have a tendency to believe. Because lies that you and I believe live in here, and they live in here, but we very seldom talk about them. Do you know that? That's why lies are so good, because they're so convincing on the inside. But I want to show you through what Luke gives us here in these stories about women who have a significant past, are in significant places and who makes significant contributions. Here's your first one, Mary Magdalene. Mary is kind of used in our culture and kind of in Christian culture at large as sort of a a woman uh, with a prostitute's past. She's never described as that. Uh, Some, maybe it was kind of the connection between this story and the previous story we looked at this way last week. But Mary uh, doesn't, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about Mary as a prostitute. Uh, rather, Mary is described as being under the influence of demons. And uh, sin and demons, I'm sorry, sickness and demons are never really equated in Luke's gospel. They seem to be, they exist in two different categories. But this woman is inhabited, it says here, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. You see the past tense again? Don't miss the past tense. You know what a verb is? Okay, good. Two people are nodding. You guys who don't know, talk to them after the service. They'll bring you up to date on grammar. Past tense. The demons had gone out. Now, we don't know anything about her story other than that. But if the story of demonic oppression and possession in the Bible is any indicator, we could go to a place like the story of Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac, who's naked, crying out, cutting himself, breaking chains apart, in and among the tombs. He's ostracized socially, ostracized religiously. He's got no hope unless the king of kings steps into a graveyard and gives him life. Anytime in the Bible you see the number seven, the number seven is meant to give you the idea of completeness. The man in the, in the, the garrison demoniac says, I, there are so many demons in me, I'm going to call myself legion. That's my name. And this woman was in a place of complete oppression. We don't know anything more than This. But one thing that's interesting about the story of Mary Magdalene as you track her through the biblical literature is that she's here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry being drawn into gospel ministry according to Christ's standards. And then she shows up at the, she anoints Christ's body, she's at the burial, she's at the crucifixion, and she's one of the two witnesses at the tomb who talk to the apostles and the apostles say, we don't believe it. So what we learn from Mary Magdalene is the fact that her redemption and freedom from demons causes her to stick with Christ throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Now, I don't know what your background is with spiritual warfare. I don't know what your background is with the demonic. I don't know what it is generally speaking. We don't even know really a lot about what Christ saved her from. But we do know that whatever it was, whatever it means to be possessed by seven demons, Christ invites her into his ministry thing, group, into his ministry group, and she sticks with him to the very end, that the depth of her salvific experience with Jesus Christ caused her to cling to Christ like nothing else. To hang on to him and to go, there's nowhere else I'm going to go because my past was so dark and so difficult and he's the only one who, had, who was able to give me hope. And the lie that a lot of us believe is that we like to believe our rap sheet. We like to believe all of the failures in our past. And Mary is here to tell you that you don't need some clean rap sheet to be used of Jesus and his purposes. I don't care how dark your past was that Christ saved you from. It probably wasn't uh, inhabited by seven demons. Now, maybe there's demonic influence in your past, and I'm not minimizing that. But I'm telling you, there's somebody who has authority over every single demon and power of spiritual darkness, and that's Christ. And no matter what your background is, the depth of what Christ has saved you from creates a brand new kind of intimacy in your willingness to follow him all the way to the cross, to the grave, to anoint his dead body and wait for him outside the tomb. So Mary is here as an example so that we wouldn't believe the lie that God can't use people with a dark past. We believe that he's the redeemer of our past sins. Amen? That's what we believe that he's done. So Mary is an example held up so that we would go. She was with him to the very end. It doesn't matter what her past is because Christ's word forgave her. There's your first one. Imagine doing her, interviewing her. I'd like to serve on the finance team. All right? Tell me about your time with Jesus. Well, seven demons, real bad. Christ forgave me. Maybe you should serve somewhere else. <laughs> What's Jesus go? You can serve with me right now. Well, I can use you right now. I don't care what your past is. You come with me, right now I can put you to work. Right now you're a testimony of, of God's grace. Here's woman number two. Look at verse three. And Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager. Now we don't know anything other than about um, Joanna other than she's, the summary statement that we get in verse two. She's been healed, right, from evil spirits and some kind of infirmity. But Joanna's a different kind of story. Joanna is not a woman with a dark and demonic past. She's a woman who's in in a significant place. She's married to somebody who I think we would all agree has influence in his day and time. He's the household manager of the tetrarch of Galilee, Herod. In fact, she is now connected to an individual who lives and works and walks in Herod's very palace. You know what's interesting about uh, Herod? Herod has, this guy is mentioned in Acts 13. He has a lifelong friend, like the dude he grew up with playing Little League. And in Acts 13, it describes the church at Antioch. And it describes the prophets and the teachers who are there, one of which is a guy who knew Herod since he was a boy, a guy named Menean. And when you get Joanna in this story, you get the sense that God has put her, Jesus has redeemed her, and he's put her in a place of great influence. You think John the Baptist could go where Joanna goes? You think the disciples, the fishermen, could come into the palace and have a welcome like Joanna would get from Herod? Now, she's married to somebody with influence, with political credibility, with financial stability, with somebody who moves among the royalty of the day. So what a contrast to Mary Magdalene, right? We have a contrast of Joanna who's, who's in this place uh, and has this level of influence. But let me tell you, like, some of you ladies are going to be put in positions of great influence some of you men are going to be in positions of great influence remember that joke i told you a while ago about how fast a pastor can shut down conversation with people you remember that it's like the superpower of an introvert you want to talk about jesus no that's great i don't like talking to people anyway some of you are going to have positions of great influence great responsibility Uh, to be put in places financially, in your careers, politically, in positions of great influence. And if you are there, one of the things that you learn in the book of Luke is that Luke has a tendency to focus on financial, um, financial issues. In many ways, commentators say that Luke is the evangelist to the rich. Because nowhere else in Luke do you get these massive moments of repentance like in the idea of Zacchaeus. This massive generous generous response in the prodigal father to the prodigal son. So a lot of people look at Luke as the gospel and say he's the evangelist to the rich. Luke writes the most excellent Theophilus who has a title of many, some of the Roman Gentile kings of the time. So Joanna is in a place of profound influence. And some of you are going to be there. And the thing that comes with influence is the fact that you are going to have to toe the line because you are walking in between two worlds. Who does Joanna work for? She works for somebody who opposes the principles and priorities of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus calls Herod? A fox. Some of you are working in organizations that are opposed to the gospel message. But at the very same time, God has put you there. He has a plan for you there. You have a role to play in the people you talk to, the people you influence, the decisions you make, the opportunities you have, and you have them where I don't. And Joanna is in a place of great influence. But she's got to walk the line between two worlds. What do you do when you're the person you or your husband works for is opposed to the ministry of Jesus Christ? You know, one of the things that commentators note about Joanna is that you have a lot in the book of Luke about the inner workings of Herod's court. What Herod is thinking, what Herod is planning, why Herod is disappointed. And they think it probably comes from this. There's Joanna and Shusa at the end of their day going, how was work for you? Well, I was following Jesus around. He kicked these demons out. And you ever met Mary Magdalene? Seven demons. Can you believe that? And then she's got to go home and hear from her husband going, what's ministry, work like in the places of influence we have? And if you are in a place of great influence, you've got to toe the line between two worlds. Between having the influence that God has given you, but recognizing that ultimately the influence that God has given you will one day be gone. And the greatest hope that we all have is following the Savior who ministers in places outside the most popular places in the city. You got an opportunity, but you got to live as called and chosen in the places God has called you. Amen? That's what we got to do. We live in two worlds. Now, one more. You with me so far? We're almost out of time. I get it. Where are we here? I told you, three verses. Now, one last person. Her name's Susanna. You see the end in verse three? Susanna is mentioned only one time in all the Bible, and it's right here. What do we know about her? Nothing. What's her background? Not sure. Was she redeemed and forgiven by Christ? Yep, that's about all we get of her. But what I want you to see is that she's put in the context now of the provision for Jesus' ministry. Jesus is a priority. Here are the people that Jesus invites into his ministry band, his ministry team. And the very last one we get is Susanna. And the place that she is mentioned is in the context of generosity. Because while we all may have pasts that we're embarrassed of, that need to be redeemed by Christ, and while we all may be in positions of great influence at some point in our life. Luke does not leave the story of being called into ministry with Christ without saying ultimately it's going to result in your willingness to be generous for the sake of the priorities of Jesus Christ. In all of the Bible, this woman is mentioned in the context of her willingness. Look at what it says. Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. The NASB puts it like this, that Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. While Mary might be known by her past, Joanna might be known by her position, Susanna is known by her generosity. How much does she give? We don't know. How sacrificial was it? We don't know. But it's as if the whole narrative stops and the emergency brake is pulled so that you and I might know that one of the natural things that flows from being redeemed by Jesus is being redeemed all the way down to your checking account. Do you know that as you sit here, there have been people who have come before you who have sacrificially given so that we might be in this place here today? You know that? There are people who so believed in the redemption of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, and the priority of the right preaching and teaching of God's gospel that they gave sacrificially They gave of what they had because they recognize they have a greater treasure in heaven. They recognize that what they have been given by Christ can never be repaid. Therefore, their financial investment in uh, putting their money toward the most important thing, the preaching of the gospel, allows you and I to sit here with the air on. Amen and hallelujah. (laughs) Do you understand that? So when Susanna is mentioned, I mean, imagine, would you put Jesus on your fridge? Here's the traveling rabbi. Does he have a building? No. Do you get a tax break? No. What does he do? Casts out demons, forgives sins, raises the dead. Uh-huh. Will you give to that? Would you give to that? See, a lot of times we, our giving gets obscured because we get stuck right we all of our 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 money has such a a hook in our hearts all the time doesn't it and we need to refresh our experience of spending time with Jesus to go God the best investment that I can make with my money is something that will affect the eternity of people who don't know you do we believe that I'm pretty sure we believe that. I'm pretty sure that you are here as a result of other people giving sacrificially so that you might hear the gospel at one point. That the church doesn't function on government grants. The church functions on the sacrificial generosity of people who have met Christ, been forgiven by Christ, been redeemed by Christ, whose past are cleansed by Christ, who are in positions and then seek to say, God, use me and my money however you want. Why is Susanna here? So that you would know that one of the natural outflows of being redeemed and forgiven by Jesus Christ is your willingness to give. Is my willingness to give because of how much Christ has given to me. Now, as we close, here's one last thing I want to show you here that is super, super important. Nobody in this story is on the sidelines. There's nobody who's been called into personal relationship with Jesus Christ who sits on the sidelines. Every single person has a part to play. Every single person has a part to play. And no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your past is, no matter how much money you have in your bank account, no matter what position God has put you in, you all have a part to play in putting the priority of Jesus Christ and the preaching and teaching of the gospel central in our lives. It takes all of us. There are so many people in this church who are willing to serve and to give because of who Jesus is to them everywhere from the parking lot to ministering to middle school kids to caring for the kids back there from uh, opening your home to have people in so that they might know the comfort and community of being in relationship with other people that the ministry in the church is always described as a body there's only one head and it's Christ every other person is a servant according to Christ's will and desire every single person has a part to play There are no small places and no unimportant people when you come to Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, you have an opportunity to be used of Jesus with your coworkers, in this church, with your friends, with your family, because of the gifting and the background and the testimony that you have of walking with Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Because that is one of the lies that can float through a church that ministry is done by the professionals. Ministry is done by people with perfect pasts. Ministry is done with people in high positions. No, 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 no. Ministry is done by faithful people who are willing to follow Christ and make the gospel the center of their life. You hear me? That's what the church is. There are no unimportant parts. There are no unimportant people. No matter what your past, no matter what your platform, no matter what you give, we all have a part. And as you do that in our church, I am so thankful to watch people get blessed because of the sacrificial service, generosity, faithfulness of the people in this place. So that you are willing to do that is an awesome testimony to how you walk with Christ, to how you know him, and how you have a chance to partake of the greatest ministry the world has ever seen. Let's pray. Father, we pause and remember and reflect that all of us are sinners in need of grace. All of us have paths that we don't like to talk about. All of us are in places, and whether they look significant or are not, they are places where we desire you to work with us, you to do things beyond what we could ask or imagine. All of us, Father, have very little in our hands like the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 who say we have five loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? None of us have infinite resources. None of us have uh, infinite financial strength. We all have what you have put into our hands for a short amount of time. Father, would you find us as believers making the gospel our priority here at Citadel Square? Would we not be controlled in our perspective by lies or our past? Would we be willing like Susanna to be sacrificially generous for what you want to do here? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.